Last year it so happened that July 4th fell on a Sunday. And I preached on that Sunday last year that if you looked out across America today, it would be easy to think that the USA stood for not much more than usury and sodomy and abortion. USA. I rejoice to tell you, as you probably well know, that as of last Thursday, not this last Thursday, the Thursday before, that the last of those things will, God willing, be dramatically reduced in this, our God-given native land. The downfall of Roe versus Wade has dealt a significant blow to the child sacrifice industry of this country. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Now, before I go on, I want to clarify something about this sermon. It's a little different from what I normally do, and I normally don't talk about my sermon preparation within the sermon itself. That's not my style. But I think it's important to just clarify that since it is July 4th weekend, and with the Dobbs-Jackson case still fresh in our minds, I am going to preach significantly on the topic of abortion today. I didn't do this last week because I was still debating in my mind whether or not it would be appropriate. I think on one hand, this sanctuary and these sermons should be uh, a outside, being outside, uh, be taken out, a separation from the world. You should come in here and be separate from the world which practices such obscene things. And I would love nothing more, really, than to be able to just sit here and give you a deep-dive exegesis on the story of the prodigal son, one of my favorite parables in the scriptures, and to leave it at that. However, on the other hand, while we are not of this world, we do live in this world. And we live in this country that God has given us. And he has given us this country as a gift. He has given you a place to live, valleys green and mountains high to walk on and to walk in. And he has given you a government for your good. Paul is clear in Romans 13 that every government is instituted by God for the good of people to preserve peace and punish wickedness. And it just so happens, especially that in our case, this government that God has given us happens to be a government, quote-unquote, by the people, for the people. You are part of the government in this country. And so if you are part of the government to preserve peace and punish wickedness, and if you are a Christian in this native land, you do not have the option to sit back like the Pharisees did in the beginning of Luke 15 when they said, this man eats with sinners and tax collectors. And grumble that your Lord Jesus would dare to be around and be in such a place. You do not have the option to sit back and say, well, I don't support abortion and I don't support sodomy, but I guess people can do whatever they want. It is your duty as a Christian in this country to support Christian morality. It is your duty in this country by the people and for the people, to be a people who knows God's word and knowing God's word, seek to advance it 
in this place. You can think about that Francis Scott Key hymn that we sang at the beginning of the service, Before You, Lord, We Bow. The same guy who wrote the Star Spangled Banner said, I'm looking out at this land and I want God's word to dominate. I want God's word to go forth. I want the Great Commission to be fulfilled in this place. Baptize all nations, nations including the United States of America nation. And so you do not have an option to be neutral on these things if you are a Christian in this place. It is the place God has put you, and fortunately he has put you in a place where you actually have some say over what kinds of morality is practiced here. And so, yes, I'm being a little political today. Not normally my custom, but not political for the sake of being political. Political because everything is actually theological. Political because God created everything, and he sustains everything in this world, and he has given you everything that you have, including the land that you walk on, including this place that you live in, including this state that you live in. And perhaps most of all, in our topic for today, he has created those babies in those wombs that need defending. And shortly, another reason that you also can't really ignore this on a more practical level is because this is close to home. In case you were not aware, Mississippi only has one licensed abortion clinic. Praise be to God, it's only one. There are states that have many more. And that is the Jackson Women's Health Organization in Jackson, Mississippi, a three-hour and 18-minute drive from here. You can go over to South Haven. You can hop on I-55, and you can get down there relatively quick. And in 2018, Mississippi passed a 15-week abortion ban. They didn't just pass it, but they actually planned on enforcing it, the state health department at that Jackson Women's Health Organization. An ironic name, if you ask me, I think we should just call it the Jackson Abortion Mill, since that's what it is. But that is the Jackson and Dobbs v. Jackson. And whenever they passed this abortion ban, the Jackson Abortion Mill decided that they would sue a man by the name of Thomas Dobbs. The Dobbs and Dobbs v. Jackson. Thomas Dobbs is the chief health officer of the state health department for Mississippi. But thanks be to God, the state of Mississippi, the land in which you live, or maybe you live across state line, but just go with me for now. The land in which you live fought this. Dobbs fought this. He fought to have that many less abortions. Not even no abortions, just that many less abortions in the state of Mississippi. And thanks be to God that Mississippi fought this all the way to the Supreme Court to have that many less abortions in this country. So praise be to God for Thomas Dobbs. Praise be to God for the state of Mississippi. And since you live here, since these things are close to home, and since it has now been proven that this fight is actually a fight worth fighting, that you can actually do something about it, let's keep fighting. It's great that we went from 24 weeks of possible abortions to 15, but let's make it zero. For every child that God created has a right to life, not just those 15 weeks and older. So we'll come back to all of that. But let's actually look at the Bible, too. I'm not going to leave you hanging on the prodigal son. 
What does this have to do with the prodigal son? Well, this has to do with being lost, with not knowing where you are, what's going on, with not knowing how to handle something. When it comes to abortion, there is no doubt that those who are pro-choice or who say they are pro-choice or even some who say they're pro-life but want to be a little nuanced about it all can become very passionate and very defensive of this demonic urge that our country seems to have to kill babies. And I think there's a very simple reason for this. The passion arises from the fact, the very simple fact, that people who are pro-life are accusing people of murder. They're accusing abortionists and mothers who have been tempted of something horrific. The pro-life argument is actually very, very simple. That baby is alive and is fully human. And so there is no moral difference to take that baby's life between taking a baby's life and taking a toddler's life. There's no difference between baby murder in the womb and toddler murder outside the womb. There's no difference between baby murder and teenage murder, between baby murder and adult murder. There's no difference, morally speaking. That's the argument. It's an unlawful taking of a human life that's murder. And if you think about that, and you put yourself in the position of the abortionist or of the young woman who's no doubt going through a very difficult time in her life, that would cause massive guilt. Massive guilt. Blood guilt. The guilt of someone's blood, innocent blood, on your hands. And you can't handle it. They can't handle it. That's where the passion comes from. That's where the defense comes from. And when I see Christians, so-called Christians at least, trying to downplay this or trying to nuance it and say, we need to be a little more careful about how we talk. Maybe in some circumstances, this or that or the other thing. I think the same thing is going on. They simply can't handle the fact that 60 million babies, 60 million Andrews, 60 million Evas, 60 million babies have been slaughtered, blood slaughtered in this country since Roe. It should cause any sane human to tear their clothes, to put on sackcloth and ashes, and to repent. It's almost impossible to deal with. And that's the story of being lost. That's the story of not knowing what to do. Being at a place where you are so lost in your own ways that you have no idea how to handle it. The story of the prodigal son, the early church often called the gospel within the gospel. And that's because probably more than any other story, any other parable of Jesus in the New Testament, it summarizes the message of the gospel so succinctly and clearly. The message of slavery to sin, to repentance, to reconciliation with God. The message of being lost to being found. There was a man who had two sons. The younger demanded his inheritance from his father, and he was basically telling him, I just wish you would hurry up and die so I could get your inheritance and go live the way that I want to live. That's what it means to get an inheritance, is that someone passes and then you receive it. 
And after telling his father he wished he were dead, he took all the money and he moved to a far country and he squandered it in profligate, reckless living. Who knows what he was doing there? The son, the other son thinks he was sleeping with prostitutes. We don't know. But then a famine came. And the famine showed him that he couldn't handle it. The famine showed him his guilt and his shame when he ended up in the place where he was just trying to eat the food that the pigs ate, not even edible for humans. He realized he couldn't handle it. He was racked, completely racked with guilt and with shame. And so he said to himself, I'm going to go back to my dad and I'm just going to beg my dad. Just please let me be a hired hand. I don't even need, I don't even need to be your son anymore. Just let me be a hired hand. And when he got there, something amazing happened. The father took on his shame and his guilt. The father, who was a stand-up man in society, did something that no stand-up man in that society would ever do. He ran. He picked up his cloak and his tunic and he ran to his son down the road. A shameful act and he covered his son with the robe of his righteousness. He covered his son's shame and his guilt. All of it. And then he made him a sacrifice, a sacrifice to cover his sin, sin. He sacrificed the fattened calf, and that reconciled him to the family. And all the family and all the friends, they all rejoiced because he was lost, and then he was found. An almost impossible story, an almost impossible act for someone who was that lost to become that found. And I want you to think of that story in a number of different ways. I want you to think of the prodigal son as a number of different people today because the gospel is deep and wide and the gospel penetrates deeply with the abundance of God's grace. And so first of all, I want you to think of this prodigal son as you. This is your story. You were lost and you were found. You were a poor, miserable sinner. This is the story of every Christian that you were born a squanderer. You were born someone who received life itself from God above, and yet many times in many places you fell short of his glory. Many times in many places you decided that you were going to use your life, your time, the things that God gave you to live profligately, to go off and do the things that you wanted to do that gave your passions and your desires that little bit of happiness that you had for a moment until you realized how messed up it all was. And instead of following his ways, instead of following his statutes, instead of following his love, you took the things into your own hands. And you wanted to follow your ways and make up your own statutes, whatever was convenient for you. And yet you are here. And he showed you his love. And he showed you his law. He did something, sent to you some kind of famine to show you that you are a poor, miserable sinner. And that you need to crawl back to your Father in heaven and you need to get on your knees and you need to ask for forgiveness from him. And you know what is amazing? Is that he ran to you. He ran to you by sending his son to you. He ran to you by baptizing you, by clothing you with his robe of his righteousness. 
He ran to you by slaying the fattened calf, by sending his own perfect son to sacrifice himself on the cross so that you could have his righteousness, taking care of every shameful and sinful act, taking care of every guilty act that you have ever done, fully atoned for by that blood. Blood guilt requires blood sacrifice, and that's what he gave you. He gave you the perfect, unblemished lamb of his son, Jesus Christ, to cover all your sins. He restored you to fellowship, and all the angels, all the family, all the friends, the whole company of heaven rejoiced, and they still rejoice today over one sinner who repents. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. So first, it's your story. It's also other people's stories, too. Consider these people. It's the story of Bernard Nathanson. Bernard Nathanson was a secular atheist Jew. He was born in 1926, and by the 1960s, he ran the largest abortion clinic in America. He says in his memoir, he presided over 60,000 baby murders, baby killings. That's what he calls them. God gave Bernard Nathanson the inheritance of life, and the inheritance of medical talent and skill. But he thought he'd do things his own way as he saw pleased him and pleased the world. But then something happened. As the famine was to the prodigal son, so were ultrasounds to Bernard Nathanson. When the technology came available for him to see what it was that he was doing, he became overwhelmed with guilt and with shame. And he became one of the biggest pro-life activists of the 20th century. In the 1970s and the 19, through the 1990s, he was writing books. He published the famous documentary, The Silent Scream. And he realized all that he had done. And how could a God forgive a man like that? How could God forgive someone who so often and so regularly blasphemed the name of Jesus? And a mass murderer at that. But you know the story. The man who is racked with guilt and shame. The man who had done so many horrible things that you can't even imagine. The father welcomed him home. In 1996, Nathanson was baptized. Nathanson converted. Bernard Nathanson heard the hymns and the prayers that the other pro-life activists sang outside the Planned Parenthood clinics, and the Holy Spirit worked faith in his heart. And the father welcomed him home. No questions asked. He didn't let him explain all of the excuses and all of the things that he had done. Remember when the prodigal son came home, he couldn't even finish his speech that he had prepared for his father. He simply welcomed him home. He was baptized. As I said, it seems almost totally impossible to deal with. To deal with the blood guilt of 60 million babies, almost impossible to deal with. But not for God, not for our Father in heaven. Blood guilt requires a blood sacrifice, and that's what God can provide. That's the only God who can provide that kind of sacrifice, is the one who slays his son. And Nathanson was washed in that blood, washed to be made white as snow. The prodigal son is your story. It's Nathanson's story. 
And I also want you now to imagine a young woman driving down I-55 going to the Jackson Women's Health Organization that it should be, could be, hopefully will be her story too. Young woman, a young woman who's given such a great inheritance, a blessing, a child in her womb. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Great is the man who fills his quiver with them. And yet, a young woman so tempted, so tempted by the lies of this society, so tempted by the lies of this world, so tempted by the devil himself to commit such an unspeakable act. And if that woman does do that act, and there are women who have, many women who have, whether of their own sinful accord or whether being tricked and tempted by the devil and the world to do so. It racks up guilt and shame. Whether they admit it or not, it racks up guilt and shame. Now, thanks be to God, you can find many women nowadays who have gone through such an experience. And they will tell you, the guilt is great, the shame is magnificent. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who delivers us from this body of sin. For blood guilt requires a blood sacrifice, and I want you to know, for your friends and for your neighbors, I want you to know, for you yourself, if you've ever experienced anything like this, that the blood sacrifice is available. The blood sacrifice has been made, and the guilt and the shame can be washed away. And so for that young woman driving down I-55, Christ's sacrifice, it's for her too. The blood sacrifice is for her as well. And that is the only thing, the only gospel, the only being found from once being lost that can deal with this kind of guilt, with this kind of shame. And so be ready with that message, dear saints. Be ready with that blood sacrifice. Be ready like the father was ready to welcome home his son to share that message with those who need it. Be ready with the gospel within the gospel. For not only do we know what the truth of abortion is, but we are the ones, the church, Jesus Christ, is the only one, the only thing needful, the only one able to deal with the guilt and the shame, the only one able to deal with blood guilt, is the only one with the forgiveness that can cover even massive, even great, even prodigal, even profligate, Sins. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of you. It's the story of Bernard Nathanson. It's the story of the young woman. And I'll leave you with this. I hope today that it is also the story of this country. For this country was given an inheritance. This country was made by God. The people in this country have been put here by God. And there was a time when this was at least in some ways, a Christian nation. This country was founded on the principle that men should be free to worship the God who gave the right to life. The right to life, and we know who that God is. There was a time 
when families everywhere bowed down every week at Christian altars, rather than at the altars of convenience, rather than at the altars of usury and sodomy and abortion. But let's be honest. We've squandered that inheritance. We have turned from our Father, and we have decided rather to be like the bell worshipers of the Old Testament who embraced debt slavery, who embraced child sacrifice, who embraced sodomy, and other such sins. But you know the story. We can turn back. There are many out there who will say it's too late. We're too far gone to hell in a handbasket. Just going to live my life. There are many out there who will be like the older son who will grumble and complain and who will say, well, I never did all of that. And so now I'm just going to be bitter about it. But we can turn back. We can repent. And God will hear us. He has heard the prayers of Christians for the last 50 years praying for the end of Roe v. Wade in this country, and he answered the prayers. And so, dear saints, this July 4th weekend, let's start to go home. When you look at the USA, be like Francis Scott Key again. Don't look out over all the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and say, Ugh, Jesus receives sinners and eats with them? But remember first that you were that sinner. And remember that God loves sinners. And that the Father welcomes home all his children. And so tell them. Tell the users. Tell the sodomites. Tell even the abortionist. Tell the young woman driving down I-55. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Jesus said it best. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded you. All nations, including this great nation, the United States of America, USA, and may God, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, may God, who wants to clothe all his children in the robe of Christ's righteousness, may God, who desires not the death of the sinner, but that all would be saved and turned to him, may he... Bless this country, and may he receive us back in loving embrace, that we may live to him to eternity. To him be all the honor and glory now and forever. Amen.